Good morning, church. My name is Caden, um, and I come from Springwood, and I often come to the 10 a.m. service. I'll be leading us in Bible reading this morning. Um, we're reading from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. I'll give you a little bit of time now just to find your Bibles, open your phones, uh, and find the verses and follow along with me. Here we go. I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with <laughs> or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her hair head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice nor to the churches of God. Well, uh, hoo boy, this is going to be an interesting one. Strap yourselves in. Uh, we are set for a bit of a wild ride together today. Uh, we are, as a church, reading our way through this 1 Corinthians letter. Lots to learn from it. Today we're up to chapter 11, a passage with a reputation. I hope uh, that wherever you are at this morning, you're somewhere you can concentrate. You've already had your morning tea or coffee. I hope you actually got a Bible with you as well, because today we're going to need to do some digging into this challenging passage. Uh, you read this passage, and it makes you think all kinds of thoughts about all kinds of serious stuff. You know, about misogyny, and about marriage, and about gender roles, and about abuse, and about keeping rules. This is the kind of passage where, unless you read it carefully... Unless you read it thoughtfully, it could easily lead you into thinking that Christianity condones all sorts of rubbish being heaped upon women. Now, this is the kind of passage that could make you wonder if The Handmaid's Tale is a little bit more fact than fiction after all. And a big part of the difficulty with this passage is that it is notoriously unclear. It's dealing with the most sensitive of subjects, but the kind of finer details are frustratingly fuzzy. A New Testament scholar named Craig Blomberg, he said this, he said, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. This is a difficult part of the Bible, but 
there's still gold in them, their hills. Uh, we're just going to have to dig a little harder and a little deeper to find it. Here's the plan this morning. Uh, I'm going to take us through this passage through three big questions. Uh, three big questions that come to our minds when we read this bit of the Bible. Now, the questions are this. Should women be wearing hats to church? Should women be doing stuff in church? And finally, should women be submissive to men? Now, big questions, but this passage gives us big answers to all these questions. Up first, women and hats in church. Now, this is the main topic that Paul is talking about here as he writes this letter. He writes to the Corinthians and he says that he really wants for the women of the church in Corinth, when they go up the front of church, when they have a role to play, to make sure that their heads are covered. And he also says that he wants the men in the church to make sure that, that they do not grow their hair too long. Simple enough, right? Well, no. No, because we hear those words and it makes us wonder if maybe we're being disobedient to God and disobedient to His Word. And today we're not all gathered together in one place for the church. And frankly, I've got no idea what you're wearing. You could be in the nud for all I know. But, but on a regular Sunday, when we're together here in this building for church, I look around and I don't see a single head covering. And there's men with longer hair. Tristan's a good example. There's women with shorter hair. And the question is, are we being disobedient en masse when it comes to this part of God's Word to us here in 1 Corinthians? You know, are we just kind of going liberal? Are we going soft? Are we accommodating a bit too much to the culture around us? Because that would not be a good sign, would it? As soon as you stop taking God's Word seriously, you're on a path that leads nowhere good. Is that us? I don't think so. The, the Bible always needs to be taken seriously, but part of taking the Bible seriously makes, means that you have to make sure you're reading it in its context. And the context here is pretty clear that in first century Roman culture, in first century Corinthian culture, head coverings meant something important. But that's not something that is translated over to our 21st century Aussie culture. Head coverings no longer mean the same sort of important thing today as they did back then. You'll know if you've been watching the last few weeks and reading this bit of the Bible with us, uh, that Paul's been talking about using our freedoms as Christians to make sure we love others rather than making life harder for others. And, and in chapter 11, he's kind of taking a bit of an extension on that same train of thought. He's bringing out a few more examples of ways where you could technically be free to do something as a Christian, but it wouldn't actually be a loving thing to do. And example number one right here is ditching your head coverings. And we know that in the Roman world, when a woman was married, she often started wearing a thin veil over her hair. It was a symbol of her marriage, kind of like our, our wedding rings are today. And, and given what Paul says here in this letter, it, it sounds like some of the women in the church at Corinth were starting to kind of wonder if maybe they should just ditch it. You know, this whole veil thing is kind of dumb, it's just a man-made cultural rule. So we Christians are free to leave it behind, Right? Some of the women are thinking that. Some of the men are thinking, I know that, that long hair is usually a women's only thing, but that's kind of silly. Maybe me going all Fabio and growing my hair out would be a great fashion statement. And so they're growing their hair longer. They're wondering if that, that's legitimate. Paul hears that and he goes, no, 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 no. Please, please don't do that because that's just going to confuse people in a really big way. People are going to turn up to your church. They're going to turn up to your church meeting, ready to hear about Jesus. And they're going to see people who are up front 
who are praying, who are prophesying, and they're going to see those same people dressing as though their marriages don't matter. Dressing as though they're not male when they actually are. And, and, and the concern that Paul has is that what is it going to say about us Christians when it seems as though we're not respecting our marriages? What conclusion are our friends going to reach about Jesus when they rock up to church and it seems as though the people in the church are not taking marriage seriously, not taking their vows seriously, acting like they're single when actually they're married? It won't be good. Your freedom to kind of ignore these dumb cultural rules could turn into a massive issue for people. Now, what, what Corinthian women and men did with their hair said something. It said something about their views on marriage. And so Paul says, please, don't weird people out. Don't do stuff that will lead to people thinking that what we think about marriage is kind of that it doesn't matter or that gender is irrelevant. Now, the question is, would Paul say the same to us today? I doubt it. I doubt he would say to the women of Central Villages that we all need to wear hats or never have short haircuts. I doubt he would say to the men of Central Villages that it's wrong to grow your hair out long. I doubt he would say that because in our culture, it is different to first century Roman culture. In our culture, hair length or hat wearing no longer means anything. It no longer communicates how we feel about our marriages. I doubt he would say the exact same stuff to us, but that doesn't mean we can forget the bigger principle here. We definitely do need to make sure that in our behaviours, we show that we are respecting our marriages. We need to make sure that we're doing things that will show that if we're married, we're committed to our spouse, that we're not looking elsewhere. You know, Christian freedom does not give us the freedom to go and flirt. Christian freedom does not give us the freedom to go and be kind of weirdly intimate with someone we're not married to. Should women be wearing hats to church? Bad news for the milliners of the nation. The answer is no. But we need to make sure we're respecting marriage all the same. That's question number one. Should women be wearing hats to church? Question number two that arises when we read this passage is, should women be doing stuff in church? Now, this is a topic that is real important because we know that the Bible has some countercultural things to say about this topic that lead us as Christians to doing things that others look at and go, that just doesn't feel right to me. Now, Paul is launching into a kind of new section in his letter here. He starts from now on talking about what happens in the church, in church gatherings. And one of the things that he makes crystal clear is that women, just like men, should be doing things up front at church. He says that it's totally normal, it's totally appropriate, totally legit for men and women to be speaking at church. It's not his main point, we're going to get to the main point in a second, but it's worth noting, it's worth being crystal clear on. Women, just like men, get to come to God through the Lord Jesus. Women, just like men, have really valuable roles to play in church life. Women, just like men, get to say really helpful stuff at church. Now, Paul says prayer and prophecy are the domain of both women and men. Verse 5, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. 
Women are doing this. Praying, well, we, we kind of naturally get what that is. Women should be leading us in praying to God when we get together. Now, prophesying, though, this, this is a little bit more tricky because when we think of prophecy in kind of our culture, it's usually Nostradamus stuff. We think predicting the future. That's not what prophecy is in the Scriptures, in the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, prophecy is referring to someone taking the timeless truths of the Bible and applying them to this particular time in the present. And most scholars who study the Bible draw a distinction between prophecy, applying the Bible to our circumstances, and teaching, which is kind of teaching the timeless truths of Scripture. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, you might well know uh, that it's very clear that this act of teaching the timeless truths of Scripture is something that God has chosen to have specially qualified men take responsibility for. He wants for certain men in a church who are qualified to take on the burden of that responsibility of teaching the Scriptures. But this bit here in 1 Corinthians is a kind of helpful counterbalance to that because it reminds us that women absolutely have a voice. It reminds us that it is just normal and good and necessary for us to be hearing from the sisters in our church for them to be helping us to understand how God's timeless truth applies to our circumstances today. That's necessary. Now, I don't want to kind of get drawn into making comments about how other churches do this, because people are going to come to different conclusions, but for us, we think it's really appropriate to have women leading our services on a Sunday. And, and as part of that role, getting a chance to say things publicly about what we're learning from the Bible. I think it's a really helpful practice that we're involved in. And of course, we also have women leading in prayer uh, to God on Sundays. Another thing that I think we need to make sure we're doing more of is making sure that we're hearing from women uh, as we do our teaching of the Scriptures. Uh, I've seen some churches get really kind of creative on this in a really helpful way and have women who are appropriately qualified uh, come and share particular applications of a passage of Scripture as part of a sermon. I think that's brilliant. And I should say, the thing that holds us back from that is not that I don't think it's good, but just because it would require a lot of organization, and I'm not that kind of organized guy. But that's on me. I want to make sure this happens. This is on my mind. Hold me to it. Should women be doing stuff in church? Absolutely yes. And it's on leaders like me to make sure that we don't neglect it. Okay, uh, last question, and uh, this is the biggie. Question three, should women be submissive to men? This is, I reckon, maybe the, the most important question for us to ponder in this passage. Because as we read these words in this passage, we're conscious that these words have at times been misused and applied in some really terrible ways to the detriment of lots of women. You know, any part of the Bible that has lines like, women were created for men, and the head of the woman is man, they pretty naturally set off alarm bells in our heads, because we know that there are people out there who will take those kind of words as a justification for their mistreatment of women, for their subjugation of women. The idea that women are lesser than men, the idea that women exist for the sake of men, 
The idea that husbands have some kind of right to boss their wives around, treat them like servants. We know that there are men out there who adopt those kind of views. You may be someone who has personally experienced something like that from a man in your life. We know that people believe this kind of wretched stuff, and we know that at times people have pointed to the Scriptures, to passages like this, as an excuse, as a way to kind of prop up their their shonky beliefs. It's appalling. It's a shocking, terrible twisting of what the Bible says. As a church, we want to be part of the solution to domestic abuse, the solution to sexism, the solution to misogyny. We do not want to be part of the problem. And so it means that we are mighty sensitive to passages like this because of the way we know some of these lines could be misunderstood. So let me try and be really clear. What does this passage teach? It teaches that men and women in marriage are equal but at the same time different. Men and women in marriage are equal but different. Now, I know that me saying that is not going to win me any popularity contests out there in the world today, but that's not my goal here. My goal is not to be popular, but my goal is to teach the Scriptures. And the Bible is really consistent in teaching this truth, in saying that this is a good thing, that men and women in marriage are absolutely equal in standing, equal in worth, but that they are different in the kind of roles and responsibilities that they carry. And we see it in verse 3, probably the most important verse in this chapter. Paul says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, now there's a lot of debate about this whole passage and whether Paul means men and women or husbands and wives. Because, you're going to love this, in the Greek that Paul was writing in, the word for husband and man is the same word, and the word, word for wife and woman is the same word. If you've got a Bible there, then you'll probably see down the bottom a little footnote that says that you could easily translate this as uh, women, or you could translate it as wife. You could easily translate this as man, or you could translate this as husband. And now normally, you kind of read the context around the words, and it kind of gives you a bit of clarity on which one it is. But here in this passage, it's, it's not 100% clear. It's super confusing. But it's also super important to figure it out, because it changes the whole meaning, doesn't it? Is this passage saying that all men are the kind of head over all women? Or is it talking about husbands kind of playing a leading role with their wives? I think that the best reading of this is that wives and husbands makes a lot more sense of the text. That it's not men and women in general. I think that because of the way it leads into this discussion about head coverings, which is most likely marriage-related... And what that means is that what is being taught here is that there is this order, there is this logic to any marriage relationship, and that this logic and order looks like, mirrors, reflects the way Jesus relates to his heavenly Father. The word that gets used to describe this relationship is the word head. You know, the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, the head of Christ is God. And there's some disagreement about what this might exactly mean, but most people agree Most scholars agree that the word here in head means authority. Authority is being carried by these different people. But, and this is really, really critical, this is not a kind of boss around authority. 
This is not a CEO versus the lowly worker kind of authority. Paul is not saying that a husband has the right to become a mini dictator and order his wife around. This is not some kind of ranking of importance or value or significance. We know that for certain because Paul chooses to tie this in with the relationship between God and Jesus. He says that this this head idea that applies to marriage relationships also applies between God the Father and Jesus' Son. We know from the New Testament that both are equal. We know from the New Testament that both are powerful. Both are God. There is absolute equality here, but one says, I trust you to make the right call. That's how it works in the Trinity. And that's the way a married couple are called to relate to one another. Men and women are not identical. Men and women bring different things to a marriage. And the Bible is not embarrassed about that. The Bible says that is a good thing. This is a a truth that Alison and I have tried to kind of let sink deep into our marriage. Let me tell you, Alison is smarter than me. Alison is kinder than me. Alison is more perceptive than me. Alison has a better memory than me. Alison is more patient than me. Alison has, over the last, I don't know how many years it is, 12, something like that. Alison has, over that time, become thoroughly essential to who I am. Let me tell you, you do not want Tom Melbourne to be the senior minister over this church without Alison Melbourne being right there by his side. That said, in family life, I am called by God to take the lead. I am called to shoulder the burden of having ultimate responsibility for the kind of decisions that we make as a family. It's not always easy, but that's how I love my family. That's how I love my wife. I take that burden. I cop the blame if it all goes belly up. I'm called to lead like Jesus leads, which means giving up my comfort, giving up my convenience, giving up my life for the sake of this woman. That is what it looks like for me to be described as the head. The Bible's teaching is that there's this order to marriage relationships, and it's not something to be embarrassed about. It's not something to be ashamed about, because it's very specific. It's not anything goes. Instead, it says, look to Jesus. Do it how Jesus did it. We should not be ashamed about the Bible's teaching on this topic. What we should be ashamed about, though, is when people, men, even husbands, have sought to justify their abuse or mistreatment or domineering of a woman by pointing to passages like this. That's evil. Evil to take the precious good words of God and manipulate them and twist them and take them out of context in order to justify you abusing someone you're called to love. That is just not what is meant by this passage. I mean, jump forwards a little bit to verses 8 and 9. This is 8 and 9, another couple of verses where some shonky brothers have pointed to them in the past to say, this is why I'm allowed to boss my wife around. This is even why I'm around to, allowed to boss women around in general. It says this, it says, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for 
man. It, it's full on on the surface, but, but here's two things. Two things to say. The first thing is that saying woman was created for man is way too simple a translation. I, I'm personally frustrated that the NIV translators have chosen to translate it like this because it makes it sound as though women are just a tool for men to use. That's exactly the kind of mindset that abusers let themselves get into. But it doesn't mean that. I, I spent the week reading a bunch of commentaries and they highlight that the particular Greek phrase here, DR plus accusative, if you're a Greek nerd, it, it means on account of. It means because of. Women were created because of man. Because man needed women. Uh, this little phrase is taking us back to Genesis. It's reminding us of the fact that women were made by God because men couldn't do this whole ruling the world thing on their own. Because men needed women to make up for their own weaknesses. Now, this is a phrase about how good women are. This is a phrase about how, how precious and integral to team humanity women are. No man should ever think that somehow he is superior to the women in his life simply because of his gender. And Paul makes it very clear in the next two verses, 11 and 12. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. We need each other. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. If you're a woman who's been mistreated because of your gender, and sadly, the stats say that that is nearly every single one of you. Then I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that men have let themselves slip into this terrible way of thinking that does not match up with God's truth. If you're a wife and you've experienced this kind of treatment from the man who was supposed to love you, then I am so sorry that you had to go through that. It was wrong. It was not what God wanted. God consciously made men and women to be different, to complement each other. But at the same time, to be perfectly equal. I hope that in time you can come to understand and experience how good that is when it's done right. I also hope that if you're right now experiencing that in any of your relationships, that you will ask for help, that you will seek it out. And brothers, to the men of our church, let's resolve to do this right. If God has seen fit to put you in a position where you're expected to take the lead over someone, especially a woman, especially your wife, then please make sure that your eyes and ears and hearts are glued onto Jesus. Make sure you're studying his every move because he is the standard of authority that you are being called to. He is the standard of authority that you will be judged against. Should women be submissive to men? No, not 
every woman, to every man. And when it does apply, in the context of a marriage, it only makes sense when that man is willing to lay down his life for that woman. If that's not happening, then that is not a marriage being lived as God designed it to be lived. This is weighty stuff, I know. And I'm going to pray for all of us as we, as we ponder it some more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this passage gives us so much to think about. It raises all sorts of questions. But thank you that it gives us answers as well. Lord, on the topic of women in churches like Central Villages, we pray that we would be a church that celebrates the involvement and preciousness of our sisters. We pray that we would not be making dumb rules that get in the way. But we also pray, Lord, that we would be sensitive, that we would be upholding marriage. Lord, we know that some of us, some of my sisters, have experienced abuse, have experienced mistreatment, because of their gender. We know that sometimes it's come at the hands of someone who should have loved them. Lord, for those who need to repent, we pray that they would repent. We pray that they would change. And for those who have been hurt, we pray for your healing. We pray that you would help us all to keep our eyes on Jesus and that we would come to see how good his order for relationships is. We pray that in his name.